0: Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. We are, albeit a little lately, discussing the March 2022 uh, print edition of the journal and we've got feeding and BPD I think are the, are the themes today it would appear. First thing I'm with, as always, Professor Ben Stenson from The Simpson Inn in Edinburgh and I'll just get him to say hello to everyone. Hello Jonathan. So the... Transfusion thresholds in in preterm infants has, has been something that's been back and forth. A reason, we'd fair to say, a reasonable amount. So, the Pint study, Ohio study, and various other sort of sort of things. So we now have the. ETTNO, I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce that in some way, but that's called the ETHNO study, which is the effects of transfusion thresholds on neurocognitive outcomes of extremely low birth weight infants, trips off the tongue, and the top transfusion of Prematures trial. So these fairly big studies uh, with uh, Edward Bell that took place uh, across Europe and perhaps, perhaps has clarified or has just made the, the, the waters a bit more muddy, Ben.
1: Yes, I'm really grateful to Ed Bell for writing this article for us, and he's written on transfusion thresholds for us before, earlier in the journey. It's, it's nice to see the evidence base coming together and helping to resolve a further dilemma in intensive and special care for our preterm babies. There really is now, it appears, enough evidence to guide us broadly in the thresholds for transfusion throughout the clinical journey for our babies, at least as measured by short-term complications, the outcomes you can measure at discharge, and early measures of later neurodevelopment. So far, that the evidence goes to two. It's possible that later in childhood, there may be more to come. So the story's not closed. But this, these studies will have the ability to answer those later questions too. So, an exciting moment in our development of care to to finally have good quality evidence to guide us.
0: I mean, certainly, it looks from my reading that there appears a little difference in targeting higher or targeting lower. Which my reading would be, if it's going to make no difference, the outcome's not going to get be any different then. Perhaps we should be thinking about not transfusing rather than transfusing. But I know that's not necessarily everybody's reading of the of the data.
1: Well, they've not shown any advantage to transfusing to target higher haemoglobin levels than lower targets in these two large studies. And you're absolutely right that targeting the lower levels uh, results in substantially fewer transfusions. So if you put these two trials together, the infants who had higher hemoglobin targets got more than 2000 extra transfusions between them without any demonstration of additional benefit. And I guess we have to remember that these these studies therefore are referring to transfusions where hemoglobin or hematocrit is the motivating factor. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we give blood under other circumstances where babies are also perceived to be in need of volume support and have borderline hemoglobins, but broadly speaking, using, using hemoglobin targets as your aim, which these studies acknowledge most people do most of the time, no benefit. So I, I would be inclined to agree with you. Well, there is a side interest that we one of the reasons we might worry about transfusing where it might otherwise not be needed is transfusion-associated NEC, and it's interesting in these trials that excess of transfusions isn't apparently associated with an excess of NEC, although the, the power to look at that will be at least limited.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and I think the last line is um is, is most interesting in that the these studies hopefully will then start to impact some evidence-based practice guidelines and um and perhaps we'll see some of those benefits or lack of harm being being born out in practice.
1: Yeah, and maybe we'll get that from bigger data. Now that so many countries have large scale databases of the outcomes of all of their babies, some of the some of the post implementation stuff will be much easier to gather.
0: Moving on from from transfusions, looking at early versus uh, late parental nutrition, we've got two studies from James Webb, uh, again using the um, the New Research Database, uh, and in this not not the. Ex- at least one of the studies is not the extreme preterm, but that sort of very preterm group and looking at the benefit of early and late preterm and sort of that earlier sort of aggressive, more aggressive, uh, potentially more aggressive nutrition. Another lovely big study from that, that group using the UK data, which has thrown up some interesting results.
1: Yes, these two studies are helping to set the scene to enable the equipoise to whet the appetite of the clinical community to finally start doing the trials that we need to understand how best to use parental nutrition, and in some respects, it, well, it's a dilemma in uh, right across the gestation range. But at least in the more mature babies, the fear of life-threatening consequences from complications of TPN in a group of babies at very low risk of adverse outcome might seem greater, and um, there's this data from adults and children that early PN in intensive care might actually be associated with harms. But these authors and Mark Johnson, his editorial, really carefully point out the major differences in circumstance between extremely preterm and preterm infants and children and adults needing intensive care for acute illness. So. There's a lot for us to work out, and these the studies show that there are some questions to ask.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot, to, certainly a lot to unpack in those. And in, in many respects, when I read them, and I think for, for one of those studies, I read it quite a lot at various stages of its um, iteration, it often presented more questions than it answered in my mind.
1: Yeah, and I think the authors would acknowledge that. These are observational studies. Where bias uh, related to confounding isn't they're attempting to do their best to remove it through propensity matching, but ultimately the aim of these authors is to give rise to trials not to
0: not to, to do the opposite yeah, absolutely, and I think they're very well worthwhile and they're very well crafted and hopefully will provide a, a springboard for other similarly well conducted trials uh, in the future. The next um, sort of group of, of conditions, sort of, we've talked about BPD in the the, the last phantoms uh, a few months ago, looking at non-invasive ventilation and BPD from the uh, Spanish SEN fifteen hundred network, which uh, covers quite a lot of I think eighteen thousand infants, uh, birth weight less than fifteen hundred grams, and gestation less than thirty two weeks, uh, and non-invasive ventilation. Still, I, I still feel that like we're not quite there with an answer for that yet, Ben?
1: Yeah, well, not there with an answer for with everything we need to know about non-invasive ventilation, but also about BPD. There are two studies on a similar topic here. There's this one from Spain and then there's the additional one from England and Wales, basically showing over time, substantial increases in the use of CPAP and high flow. And over time, disappointingly little change in the numbers for BPD. And these therapies are included in the definition of BPD and clinicians have difficulty weaning babies off what they might perceive as non-invasive treatments. So that may be part of it. But underneath of it all, there's a bit of a feeling that we've hit the buffers in terms of making a substantial difference in the number of infants with BPD, even though exposure to more invasive treatments is going down so we've got some work to do to achieve the next shift in outcomes in this subject area
0: and brett manley and his colleague uh, kit hodgson discuss in a, I want to say editorial rather than a viewpoint, uh, sort of the increased risk of, of BPD and, and this association with high flow and point out some some interesting, if not confounding, uh, factors and how we view that and people's perhaps concern that high flow may be increasing rates of BPD and the, perhaps the difficulty in, in having to tease that apart.
1: Yes, and that's the confounding by indication they are talking about, whereby... Yeah. You've got to live long enough and be well enough to manage on high flow to get on it. And therefore, there's a bias intrinsic in looking at the association between high flow and BPD. But the other thing that Brett and Kate point out is the difficulties with the definition of BPD. We've moved from an era where old BPD was marked by terrible lung destruction and newer BPD much less so, but with. Gradual um, process of overcoming lack of alveolarization. But in amongst that, our definition of BPD has stayed broadly the same. Mm. And again, those of us who've been around for a while would say, well, we're still calling just as many kids BPD as we did before, but they're not nearly as bad. And they were born earlier and we definitely are doing a lot better with BPD than we were 10 or 20 years ago, even if the absolute numbers of kids defined with the condition isn't going down.
0: Yes. yeah. I guess the question is, is it the same thing or is this something else? And it's likely over those 30 years, the way we've treated it and the way these babies have presented and the obstetric care, those things have changed. It's likely that what's happening in the lungs will have, will have changed as well.
1: Also, there's a complexity because we need simple pragmatic definitions. If you have to do all sorts of clever tests to characterise degrees, it becomes unmeasurable across large populations. So we're a bit stuck.
0: Yes, well, hopefully with perhaps physiological definitions rather than treatment based definitions we can we can come to some uh, consensus of how we measure the, what's going on rather than how our individual treatments vary and how that impacts how what we call perhaps the same condition yeah training preterms to feed now this is something that i find absolutely Somewhere between revolutionary and completely fascinating, can we train our preterm babies to to just get there faster in terms of oral feeding? Um, so this was a really interesting study by uh, Jusun Sun uh, Hyo at AL. This is about 180 preterm infants less than 32 weeks. Very interesting study, Ben.
1: Yes, I found it very interesting too. Because as a neonatologist, I have to confess to little expertise in the process of getting babies to feed. It's something that is largely dealt with by other groups than the senior medics in our nation, at least. And um, I've been guilty over the years of feeling that it's largely maturationally dependent. And it's not a case of training babies as much as waiting until they have the required wiring to achieve it. But this at least... Poked me in the eye in terms of saying, Are you sure? These uh, investigators, in a study where they've attempted to mask effectively, have exposed a group of babies to two interventions which may help them to train earlier and demonstrated differences in time to full feeds associated with that intervention. So it's, it's interesting preliminary evidence. From a single centre in a modest sample size, if it can be replicated in studies from other centres, then we've really got to take notice of it because the differences are enough to change the length of stay for babies in neonatal units and um, help them get onto a more normal pattern of care sooner.
0: Yeah, and it'd be great to see um, perhaps people taking these kind of trials on board and looking how to replicate them in their own setting, and um, perhaps collaborating across different cultures and and what have you, and and seeing if this even just the principles of this is something that, like you say, length of hospital will say, um, and no doubt like other associated benefits of not being hospital for so so long, but a really a really interesting premise and hopefully something that uh, will will just set something alight I agree that's a a broad but in some ways kind of sort of bread and butter sort of neonatology sort of discussion um, and hopefully some good uh, springboarding for thinking about other studies practice simple practice guidelines and uh, a little think about definitions so ben thank you very much for a, a fascinating discussion and we look forward to the next one
1: thanks jonathan